0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, for anyone who has canceled or is on the verge of canceling a friendship or relationship over political differences, author Monica Guzman has a message. Slow down and get curious. She shares the details of how to choose that path in her new book, I Never Thought of It That Way. How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Similar to a continental divide, our so-called partisan divide separates people into divergent rivers and seas of belief and opinion. Sometimes the resulting chasm seems unbridgeable. But contrary to the continental example, Guzman points to the many ways in which our disconnections are not an unavoidable force of nature. She says our divide is not as big as we think it is. Guzman divided her book into three parts. She calls the first section SOS. That stands for Sorting, Othering, and Siloing. Part two concerns curiosity. It touches on perspective, friction, conversation, and traction. And part three covers people via our assumptions reason, and opinions. The book covers subjects such as how to ask what you really want to know, even if you're afraid to, how to grow smarter from even the most tense interactions, online or off, and how to cross boundaries and find common ground with anyone. Monica Guzman is a former columnist at the Seattle Times, GeekWire, and and the Columbia Journalism Review. She is the co-founder of the Evergrey newsletter and serves as an advisor to Braver Angels, a national organization with a mission to depolarize America, and Together Washington, an organization building collaborative local relationships among leaders in Washington State. Guzman is interviewed here by David Horsey, a two-time Pulitzer Prize recipient for political cartooning based currently at the Seattle Times. The event was presented by Town Hall Seattle, the Henry M. Jackson Foundation, and the Western Washington Braver Angels Alliance on March 22nd. There's a preface
1: here I was thinking about the last time I did an interview like this with anyone, and it was actually with Bernie Sanders in Los Angeles right after the 2016 election. And after I began my first question, people started shouting at me, hurry it up, get to the point. And that was just the beginning of a very raucous night with (laughs) with about 2,000 Bernie supporters. Um, so I, I assume you will be a little calmer, I hope. Um, but the last time I actually interviewed anyone on the stage here at Town Hall was Rachel Maddow. And I was thinking about that because it was a much more pleasant time than the night with Bernie. Um, and I suspect it's it will be much like this because I think Monica Guzman is the next Rachel Maddow. Um, I think you, you, the same sort of... Curiosity and intelligence and dogged journalistic skills and and having read your book and her books, you both have this way of taking on a uh, really tough subject, but writing about it in a sort of an informal way that is it makes it fun to consider horrible things. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> what? So what you've done now is to take on a big issue that that is really been on my mind for several years and keeps me awake at night, and that is the the, the deep division in our country, you know, the division that, that is to the point where some people are saying, you know, we're in the edge of another civil war, and, and that may be overstating things, but we all are very aware about the, the political divide. Um, I my last cartoon book that I did last year, in fact, it was called Drawing Apart Political Cartoons from a Polarized America.
2: Yeah, I have
0: that one. It's a good one.
1: It was sort of a description of the depths of the problem, and now you have this wonderful book, which offers a solution, or at least a way out of it a little bit. Um, you know, I, as a political cartoonist, I've, I've witnessed the growing gap that... that, uh, that uh, is existing in our country, um, and it, it seems like a, a canyon. <laughs> and, but you're saying we can build some bridges across that canyon. And just to start with, what, what brought you to that realization or that understanding, and sort of the, what, what, what's behind this, the book you've written?
2: Yeah. I mean, in maybe the simplest, starkest terms, it's the relationship <clears throat> between myself and my parents, So we're Mexican immigrants, and we became citizens in the year 2000. And that was the year where I came home from school, and I dropped my backpack on the floor in the office, and I looked up, and I saw a Bush-Cheney sign over my mother's desk. And I was like, Republicans? Really? (laughs) And I was 17 at the time, and I just figured, I don't know, that they would think like I did. And they didn't. And that started many years of very unfiltered debates, you know, screaming matches, all these things that got particularly heated at the 2015 election when Donald Trump was running, and you know he was like an early favorite even in the primaries for my father, and I was like, what? Um, and yet, I can say, I can say that I know their reasons for voting for Trump, and they know my reasons for voting for Biden, and that we have the kind of relationship where we continue to talk about politics when we want to, when the conditions are right. So when I, when I look at the chasm, I recognize that I may not be looking at what's really there. I may be looking at a projection that makes the divide bigger than it really is. And in fact, there's a lot of social science research that shows us that the ideological divide, meaning that the divide that is based on the actual disagreements between parties, between the binary, if you will, it really isn't as big as we think. It really isn't. But the kind of polarization that is doing more, you know, I would say damage, uh, but is also just impacting our view of the other side is called affective polarization. That's the polarization of feeling, of the animosity that one side has for the other. That is what, that feeling is, is pretty strong, and it can really get in the way.
1: Well, it makes me think of the, what I think. I see as sort of the, the, the ground you built your book on in describing the problem, you 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 kind of reduced it to SOS, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe you can describe what SOS is because it, it, yeah. it's a pretty succinct way of looking at at uh, the reality we're dealing with.
2: Yeah. So SOS is the call for help, ah! <laughs> which we know we're all feeling, and it stands for sorting, othering, and siloing. So these are three dynamics very natural parts of what it means to be human uh, social humans that have brought us to this point so sorting is when we very naturally want to move ourselves to be closer to people who are like-minded because well it feels better we're not uncomfortable and then when times are so anxious and everything feels so high stakes well It's even more true that we want to be around people who are like us. So uh, some recent great reporting uh, nationally has shown that just as suspected, blue zip codes are getting bluer and red zip codes across this country are getting redder. Then othering, the O in SOS, and that's about the distance that we put between ourselves and those we deem different. And research going back to the 70s shows that it doesn't even have to be a very big or meaningful difference for us to discriminate against those we find different just a little bit. But obviously, when the difference is meaningful, we can get to the point where we're dehumanizing people more easily than we care to admit. And then the last S is siloing. And those are the stories we tell as a result of sorting and othering. So in the case of the political divide, you know, everyone gets their news from wherever they get it. We have a plurality of sources and a lot of media and communication silos. And our technology platforms, where we do so much of our, of what passes for conversation these days, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on whatever, is, is designed in such a way that we pick our neighbors we pick the people we follow, we pick who we unfollow, and over time, it gets sculpted into this, this place where we are surrounded by things that come from largely people who see the world the way we do. So what that means is that over time, perspectives that come from people who are different are going to get pretty warped and skewed on their way to us. So I think of it as a reality distortion field. When you look across the divide, it's a funhouse mirror. What you see, but we don't always notice that that's what's
1: going on. It um, it actually reminds me of uh, an assignment I had in 2016 at the LA Times. So LA Times, one of the top newspapers in the country, with this you know great political writing staff. <laughs> but they came to me for some reason and said, "Looks." <clears throat> Looks like Trump is actually serious. Who who are these people that support him? Yeah. So they they sent me to Phoenix right before the Arizona primary to talk to Trump people, and it was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's it strikes me as odd that you know even a major newspaper like that, where you think they'd be on top of all of this, mm. had this gap of knowledge of even knowing who these people might be. Right. And it turned out they're a pretty device, device, divisive group. Yeah, that, that came out right. <laughs> a diverse group. Uh, but I remember particularly this this one guy I talked to who was a about eight feet tall, big biker, in, in all his regalia. And I came up to him and said, I would just want to kn- talk to him, want to know why he was for Trump. And he he looked at me so suspiciously. It was like, I know you're going to make fun of me. Mm. And I actually in my th- mind I thought, I might <laughs> that's kind of my job, uh-huh. but it was it turned into a nice little conversation because yeah. he finally decided he'd risk. But uh-huh. that, that's sort of wandering to, to, to your ultimate goal is to get people who are so diverse to start understanding each other and maybe finding some common ground.
2: Yeah. And, uh, your, your anecdote reminds me of something I heard just recently, um, and I think this comes from Jonathan Rauch, uh, who's an author uh, in his own right, an incredible thinker, and he says that the dominant emotion on the right is anger, and the dominant emotion on the left is contempt. And I'm not qualified to say whether that's true or not, but I know that when I heard that, there was some recognition, uh, which which brings us back, I think, a little bit to the what I really deeply believe is the solution here. It, it's curiosity. But, but curiosity can be condescension. Curiosity can take on... That, that's not the curiosity I'm talking about. You know, when, when, when we approach other people and we already feel that there's nothing of value that they really have to offer, where we already feel we're pretty certain about them, we're asking questions maybe voyeuristically that's not curiosity so it's it's a it's a different kind of approach and different kind of exchange that I I know that we can do because I've seen it and it's growing but it begins with a different definition of listening where it's not just about paying attention it's not just about being present those things matter but listening is about showing people they matter that what, I, what I've learned through my experience at Braver Angels and lots of other things is people cannot hear unless they are heard. And so if we want the kinds of conversations that, frankly, our democracy deserves, you know, where, where it's a real exchange and we're putting the best stuff on the table and mixing it up and seeing what's there, I mean, we're going to we're gonna have to make sure that everyone's concerns can be heard. The, the concerns underneath, the, the stuff that's really got people bothered and, and, and ending up on different sides of certain issues, It's I can say a lot more about what gets in the way of that, but I think that's the radical change, is listening that shows people they matter, that begins by with that and is open to what's really going on with them.
1: Well, the what I think is sort of the heart of your book is a story you tell about a trip you took to Oregon. And unlock my little excursion to Phoenix, I wasn't trying to share my story with these people. I just want to hear what they had to say. But this has to be a two-way street, ultimately. So you took a group of people, liberal Seattle folk, to a little town in Oregon filled with Trump voters and had quite an experience. And so what did you learn from that? Oh,
2: my gosh. Yeah, so this happened in March of 2017. So it's been five years, which is wacky. And it resulted from the newsletter I founded here in Seattle, the Evergrey. Uh One of our core values was curiosity. And our readers would say, I'm really curious, but I don't know who to be curious with. I don't know any Republicans. I hear that there's people with different lifestyles, but, you know, I'm in the big city. I don't know what's what. So we asked, well, if there were an opportunity, if we could figure it out to go somewhere, um, would, you, would you take it? And then we discovered that Sherman County, Oregon, which is a county of about 1,700 people, second smallest county in Oregon, entirely agriculture, wheat, uh, was the county nearest ours that voted exactly opposite in the presidential election in 2016. So through some really interesting googling, And a really interesting phone call with a woman in her 80s named Sherry Caseberg uh, that I was just really nervous to talk to. I told her this idea, you know, like, well, I don't know, maybe, like, if we just come down and visit, like, maybe we could figure it out, you know, this country. And she's like, that sounds like a lovely idea. And I'll never forget that she said that. And one thing led to another, and she connected us with a person who's been an agricultural agent in Sherman County for many, many, many years, Sandy. And we partnered with him to design this event, and so we drove down. It was a five-hour trip there and a five-hour trip back. And I mean, this is Sherman County. People from Seattle never go. Um, so there was there was so much we learned, but I'll but I'll focus on the the key thing. Several people who who went uh, I've talked to since, and one of the big things that a lot of us liberals discovered was what we were missing one person who went was very open with me about the assumption that she had been making in her mind and heart which was if people people who are against what i support must hate what i love that must be it you know here's the pieces i voted against trump because i care about you know, same-sex marriage, I care about the environment, I care about these things, and I can't imagine, I can't imagine, like, standing against all that. How, that doesn't make any sense. So she could tell that she was sort of dehumanizing people who had voted for Trump for, for that reason. But when we went, and she wasn't the only person to get really stunned by this, we learned um, from a couple of farmers who talked to us about something called the Waters of the United States rule, and the Waters of the United States rule is this federal regulation that says that, um, that certain uh, bodies of water could come under federal government control. Uh, but that maybe what, they, what the farmers were concerned about that was that it could be interpreted to cover like rain-made ponds on their land. Or furrows, which are the little ditches that form in between rows of crops. And they did not trust Democrats to take their concerns seriously, but they might trust Republicans and the businessman America had elected president. And that was one of the big takeaways, like, oh, oh, right? When we actually get curious about each other with each other, we might find reasons that didn't even matter to us, right? Because we live a different life. We're in a different place. We have, we're just playing a different game. And that yeah, that was one of the big takeaways for a lot of people.
1: Um, so, more re- <laughs> there are two ways they want to go here, but I'm going to go this way first. Um, Monica just got back to Seattle for after a, a tour that took her to Washington, D.C. and mm-hmm. other places to spread her fame and her story and her <laughs> idea. Um, and one of the people she encountered on that was, I know where you're was going. Was clearly with this. not someone you would necessarily expect, but is definitely trying to build a bridge. Uh, she had a, uh, a rather good time with Glenn Beck, apparently, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the right wing commentator who. It's not as crazy as some, but and that's pejorative. I'm sorry, but I'm a cartoonist. Uh, anyway, tell me about... You
2: can't your, help yourself, David. I understand. Tell me
1: about your new best buddy, uh, Glenn Beck.
2: Oh, man. how that so, happen? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, he, he, he reached out. Um, there, there was a, a, a contact who had recommended, you know, Glenn Beck would be a wonderful person to talk to about these ideas. And he was. Um, we talked for like an hour, an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half. Uh, and the whole episode is up. And I, I watched it. I finally watched it through. And I couldn't believe the amount of times that I would say something and he, he would go, yes, exactly. Or that he would say something and I would go, yes, exactly. We weren't talking about politics. We were talking about what's getting in the way of everybody's talking effectively about politics. And we agreed. Uh, One of my favorite moments from that episode, we were talking about opinions and sharing our frustrations about how people tend to conflate their opinion, like conflate opinions with people. That a person is what they just tweeted, (laughs) you know? (laughs) That that's it. Um, But also that opinions seem these days to come in a bundle like, so Braver Angels, where, where I work, the nonprofit where um, we bring reds and blues together to help depolarize America, and we have these workshops where reds and blues, um, and also purples and others and all that, but, you know, they, they learn from each other, and it's great, and I've witnessed many of these, and afterwards, one of the most interesting and common things that I hear uh, is people going, you know... I realize I don't even think I've thought about my opinions all that hard. I don't know that I've really, like, spent time thinking about it. And the reason is because we're so fixed to our sides. That's where we feel kind of safe. Um, we're We're so fixed to the talking points that are floating around out there and feel like they can give us shelter that... We really aren't always, you know, thinking about our opinions, and we're taking it all as a bundle. This is the bundle, I've bought the bundle package, here it is. So Glenn at one point said, you know, and this is why he said, you know, I always tell people, I'm not here to like give you my opinion, he said. Um, I, you know, I've arrived at my opinion through a lot of my own like work and experiences, and so. Everyone should do that for themselves too. Like, and I think I think what he said exactly was like, you sh- don't. How do you say like don't don't live by what I've discovered. You go discover it, and I thought it was such a hum like humble sort of um, you know, sort of admission of the natural limits of a, of a commentator, right? Someone who shares opinions and has a lot of influence. But but he was but he was saying. People should should come to their own opinions, and as new evidence comes in, change their minds. And, and this is what we should all do. And that was really interesting to hear from him. Yeah,
1: I, I think you picked the right guy to to, to start it with. Mm. Sean Shan Hannity might have been mm. tougher, but um, <laughs> so what? What got you to? Clearly, this stuff's been on your mind a while what what brought you to say i've got a book here I, there, I there's some i can pull this all together and and say something and encourage these bridges and you know that doing a book is not an easy thing no <laughs> it's a really it's no. like hard work <laughs> no. um what what made you take that leap
2: yeah i mean you know one was the urgency so Right after the election, I discovered my party trick in Seattle, which was telling roomfuls of my fellow liberals that um, that my parents are Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump. And in 2017, that like never failed, just stopped conversation, (laughs) you know, and it's whenever we would start talking about politics and people would kind of creep their way toward saying some things that I knew were untrue uh, about that whole group right because I know my parents and it's not just my parents I know I know plenty of folks who are conservative um, so it was it began there where I where I sort of looked around I was like but these things aren't true and they're making us so afraid of each other and I don't know how that's going to play out well for any of us you know and you, you poll people I mean if you look at the commenters on the Glenn Beck episode you know they're just like these lefties, blah blah blah, you know it's there's so much like discord and hate. so I just knew that's not that's not us being you know a healthy society like that that's just not going that's not going to help but but it was also combined with the fact that I've been a journalist um, you know my whole career, and <laughs> you know as as you know, being a journalist means that you You have a lot of conversations that are about understanding without judgment, where where your job is to go and get somebody's story and then hope and pray that you can capture it in 600 words responsibly enough so that the community can learn from it and have a sense of awareness of who and what it is and how it can grow and how it can thrive. Like, that's good journalism. So, so it was those two threads combined, be, me being like, well, journalism's about asking questions. Why did we stop asking questions? When did we decide we didn't have to anymore? When did we decide we knew everything we needed to know about what those other people think? And then I started looking into the science of curiosity. And I realized certainty is the arch-villain of curiosity. When you think you know, you don't think to ask. And there's so much fear and anxiety that, you know, we manufacture certainty in order to, to be okay. And it's killing us.
1: So, uh, there, there's, we, we could literally talk about this subject in this book for hours. So, um, I encourage you to read it because there's a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot in there uh, in terms of techniques and approaches to have these conversations. And I i don't want to leap into describing that. I want to actually leap beyond it, saying uh, one of the things you say is uh, every conversation needs willing participants. Yeah. And you know, apparently Glenn Beck was a willing participant, and these folks in Oregon were. Mm-hmm. But are you confident there are enough people out there that want to have these conversations are willing to put aside their stereotypes and assumptions. That they're motivated to, yeah. Let's. I, I'd like to make things a yeah. little nicer than they are. Yeah. Um, so far, I mean, what 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 do you what do you think?
2: I am now, I am now. While I was writing it, I think I was going on a little bit more of just faith, but but just in the last month. I cannot believe just the number of people kind of coming out, you know, sending me emails, messages, the, the signals that I see all around where the one thing, left and right and middle and libertarian and whatever, everyone agrees this sucks. Like, right. <laughs> the way we're doing it sucks. Nobody likes what it's doing to their families. Nobody likes how dysfunctional our politicians are. I mean that's just so broken, right? Nobody's like, "Yay, rah, rah, Congress!" Right now, Like, no. And 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 it's not just that. It's, it's it's our political institutions. It's our media. You know, we're both members of the media. I I am very honest about yeah. Our chief storytelling institution is somehow producing content that leaves us so misinformed about other people. That's a failure. We have to figure that out. So so that's it. Is like. Everyone agrees on that. The, where people are, uh, where they do stop is this idea of, like, I'm willing to do it, but I don't know if anyone else is. Because we haven't, we haven't talked about this yet. We haven't really broken open this conversation. So that's what gives me the most hope is I think, I think we're so ready. And I also feel like, man, the 2022 elections are coming up. You know, stuff's going to get all high, like super high stakes again. It's going to be really raw and ragged and it's going to be like victory at all costs and it's going to get hard. It's going to get hard to get curious. But I just, I think people have had enough. That I just hear it over and over again. People have had enough. Um, and now, you know, after the Glenn Beck episode, I'm hearing it from so many conservatives going, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to talk to my so-and-so tomorrow. Like we're going to do this.
1: Well, that, that's that's encouraging. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about some 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 people have been, are, have continued to be skeptical. Of this oh, yeah, no, of and course, for good yeah. Reason. And, and yeah. one one thing that I, I've had some great conversations with friends in Montana and South Dakota and uh, very religious friends, usually not about politics. We can touch on it, but we can talk about politics because we have a relationship on a lot of other levels, and I, and I think what you're talking about is not changing somebody else's mind. It's just understanding where they're coming from, so that you could just have a civilized debate and continue to disagree, mm-hmm. but not hate each other, not thinking about each other as enemies. But what what about? What happens when the conversation gets to a point where the other person is saying things that you know are absolutely untrue mm-hmm. and maybe some dangerous ideas that are untrue? Mm-hmm. Is that where the, the bridge gets a toll on it? Or, yeah, a toll <laughs> on that. I mean, how do you That's deal good. with that reality? Because yeah. thanks to uh, 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 well, a lot of sources... Uh, people are believing some crazy stuff that yeah. simply is not there. But uh, I've, I've, I've now, I'm more aware than ever of how people tend to believe things that make them comfortable, yeah. not necessarily things that are true. Yeah. So anyway, in these conversations, how do you deal with, with that reality?
2: Yeah. Well, the first thing to check is, is it a contained conversation to the people having it or is it not? So people talk about the fear of platforming, right? That some harmful idea is coming or some some misinformation, some disinformation, and we don't, we're scared. We're scared to give it a platform and give it a voice. And one wonderful way to avoid that problem altogether is to have one-on-one conversations. So there's two things that are really important that need to happen in our society. One is the continuous and lovely and wonderful collective search for truth. What's being compromised about that is it's not collective. Right now, there's two main camps doing their own searches for truth. And of course, that's oversimplifying. There's lots of little silos and communities doing that, but we're not doing it together. But the other thing that is really important that we're not paying enough attention to is building trust. The glue that holds us together as a society across difference is weakening. We, we have you know, in some ways, like our truth-telling institution is media, right? Like our, our social institutions and governing institutions, we have like politics and our elected offices. Our trust-building institution is just our own relationships in a pluralistic society. But the more bridges we burn, you know, instead of keeping in the hopes that someday we can cross them, the harder it's going to be to build trust. So that's the conundrum, is you can't There cannot be a collective search for truth without trust. And so long as the search for truth is not collective, it is not complete. So that's the problem we're at. So now you're in a conversation and someone has said something that you really deeply believe, you know, according to everything you've seen, that is just, that is hokey. That is untrue. Here's what's lovely about conversation. There are many different levels to it. And here's what I'll say about misinformation. Misinformation. False stories soar when they speak to something that's true. Fake news, all this stuff, it works because bad actors are exploiting people's need to be heard. There are concerns that are unacknowledged. There's something that the good actors aren't hearing. And people will not be unheard. We are not built for that, so so that's how that's how I approach it. So so you're in that conversation, and you hear something untrue. Don't get too distracted. Again, if you're not if you're in a contained conversation, platforming's not a problem. So you can rule that out. Don't get too distracted by that untruth. Get beneath it to the concern. Ask people what how did you come to believe that, and don't judge it. Don't tell them they're wrong. Just what, what brought you to that? I'm really curious. And then what, what concerns, uh, you know, what, what, what are you afraid of? Well, what concerns you about this thing that we're talking about? And you will learn loads. You will learn so much. Um, because they'll begin to talk about something that is true and that they are the world's foremost expert in, which is their own story. And so that's another way to avoid the whole fake news misinformation thing. It's like, you're an expert on David Horsey, I'm an expert on Monica Guzman, each of you are experts on yourselves, and whoever you talk to is an expert on themselves. And that's powerful. So again, it doesn't all have to be up here at the level of syllogisms and, you know, reason and what's true and untrue. We can also have a conversation, to, to quote my friend Buster Benson, not about what's true, but about what's meaningful. And there is a lot of truth we can discover when we learn what's meaningful to people who are different from us.
1: Well, Ma- Monica and I first met when she came to the PI as uh, first on what, what was your time?
2: Online only reporter.
1: Online only. <laughs> yes.
2: Um, yeah, and, lonely job. And at, and
1: at that point, I thought you were well. I, I perceived you as this just total cheerleader for you know. Social media, etc. In yeah. fact, if you allow me to tell this story about your wedding, yeah,
2: oh no,
1: her husband, yeah. she and her husband Jason had their their iPhones at the top of their wedding cake, and part of
2: in our one, defense, it was twenty ten.
1: One, yeah, it was a long time ago. It was a much more optimistic day, and and part of one of the ceremonies they had was to change their uh, relationship status. Oh, my God. Um, Facebook
2: <laughs> so embarrassing so, it did not hold up well
1: let 's just say my my perception now is that you 're a little more skeptical of uh-huh. social media, but i I guess what I wonder is you 're talking about conversations one on one conversations, and there are a billion online conversations going on, and most of them are really nasty and terrible and and it's it's that is such a huge influence and on top of that you know partisan media and talk radio it's a that's we got to do a lot of one-on-one to overcome all that <laughs> i mean are you yeah. is this a david and goliath thing i mean people always use that analogy by the way and david actually won so i guess that, i know, you know it's like well <laughs> but it worked guys how do you are are you really confident that that this can I, it, just looking at it sort of in the terms i put it, it's like oh right we're just going to talk to each other and that's going to be you know but actually i the way you talk about how people are responding to this i'm not sure it has to all be a conversation mm-hmm. or, or a million conversations or maybe it does but maybe it's just doing enough that it shifts the, con- the broader Absolutely. understanding. Oh, there is another way we can get along yeah. like we used to.
2: Yeah, yeah. so I'll say, you know, things are so bad. I mean, little steps go a long way, right? The, the cover of the book is a bunch of eyes for this reason. Um, because we're so divided, we're blinded. And right now if we can't get curious across divides in our polarized world, we can't see the world at all. That's where we're at. That's how bad it is, right? So the good news is that everyone's desperate to be seen by someone. And that's why, that's why good conversations with good listening, where people show each other they matter, can really be so powerful. But, but let me also clarify that it's not all just conversations. And in fact, if, if a conversation with another person just feels like too much, cool, that's fine. You can have more curious conversations with yourself, Here's how. Next time you find an article that has an opinion that is contrary to yours, you know, but is thoughtful or what have you, or seems to come from a source where like, okay, yeah. uh, Instead of tweeting about how much it sucks before reading it or something like that, um, open the article and as you read it, ask yourself a couple of questions. Ask yourself, what is the ultimate deepest concern that is looking to be addressed here. Or ask yourself, what's the strongest argument for this point of view if I sit generously with it? And then get yourself to stop asking something that social science shows we all ask when we encounter views that seem opposed to our own. We ask the question, must I believe it? And when you ask, must I believe it? All you need is one reason to dismiss the entire thing. That's how our brains work. So you can actually just have more curious conversations with yourself. Catch your assumptions in the act. Catch your certainty in the act. So even if, all we, if the only change was that a whole like a, you know, a bunch of people just decided to listen differently to different opinions, that is already an improvement. Or if you, next time that you did catch yourself in a conversation with someone who disagrees with you on some issue, you decided to ask them one more curious, non-judgmental question before you jumped in with your opinion, that makes a difference. Or if you decide, you know, I wasn't ever going to talk with this person about this thing, but now I feel like I can, and I can get there with curiosity and just be like, you know, I really, I really am just a little confounded by this would you would you have a moment just to tell me more about how you came to this that's that's enough so so it doesn't have to be <laughs> it doesn't have to be talk to a nazi tomorrow <laughs> i think a lot of people think they look at this kind of idea and they're like that's what you want you want me to do the hardest possible thing you know no each of us has a completely different psychological formula a different level of difficulty but every single one of us can push our own boundaries by one one click. That's enough. That's enough.
1: Well, I wanted to get to some of the questions here. And uh, just looking through them so far, they're all kind of on the uh, yes-but level.
2: Good. Let's do <laughs> so, it.
1: So we'll jump into, uh, into that. Um, what you're saying all makes sense, but then you add in religion that seems to often take a conversation out of the realm of the reasonable and rational into the inexplicable mm. how do you factor into that into these conversations
2: mm. yeah that's a great question because with religion you know with lots of opinions it's like persuasion i don't think is is a great first goal but persuasion can still happen right we can we can shift each other's thinking but when it comes to religion, persuasion isn't really on the table in a lot of ways, right? People have their faith. People have things that make life meaningful to them and, and great. So, so it's a different kind of thing. So, so one thing I would say is uh, conversations that try to persuade people away from their faith, if that's where it is, ugh, that's going to be a little tricky, right? But usually what it is is that people find justifications for their political opinions in their faith. And in that case, you don't have to stay in terms of faith. You can still ask about concerns. You can still ask about what's meaningful. You can find the common ground there. Um, so, yeah, so you don't need to keep it in those terms. Now, if, if they choose to keep putting it in those terms, that's because that's, that's how the meaning has found manifestation in their lives. So we can appreciate that. You know, we can get curious about that. I think it could be pretty cool. But... Uh, but no, but I understand that, you know, for some things it's like, it can feel like faith keeps people maybe from coming to a place where they can see more of humanity. I know that that's, that's, that's a concern for, for many folks with some issues. So it really is issue dependent.
1: So, so far have you, this is a pretty good question. Does, does there seem to be as much interest from red folks mm. in Braver Angels as blue folks
2: In the whole project of curiosity, take it, of this this kind of thing.
1: Basically, who's more interested in this conversation?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, first, I'll be honest. Uh, Braver Angels has made, like, incredible... It's it's an amazing organization to be part of. Um, We have what's called the the Braver Angels Rule. So at all stages, all levels of leadership, we must have 50%, 50% red-blue leadership. That's including in our 74 local chapters across the country. And we have the Western Washington Alliance... Represented here tonight. Um, that said, we still have more blue members than red. The common assumption that I have heard from that is that liberals are more curious. And I gotta tell you, I don't buy it. It is not true in my experience. Um, you know, to me, curiosity, I, I have not seen the evidence that convinces me that curiosity is a personality trait. Um, curiosity is a practice, but I go back to what I said earlier that people need to, people can't hear unless they're heard. So I hear from a lot of folks on the left. i reached out to my uncle, my aunt, my friend, what have you. And we sat down and I got really curious. And you know what, Monica, it didn't work. I asked all the questions for two hours and all they did was rant. And so then at the end I said, this is it. I doesn't work. I burned the bridge. I decided never to talk to him again. And what I say to that is, again, it's like people can't hear unless they're heard. So we can't, we can't control each other. We can't decide when another person feels heard. We, we can't decide when they're ready to engage in that conversation. So we have to be open to the possibility that some folks are going to take the opportunity, if you're hearing them, and it's unusual, <laughs> that they'll talk. And that maybe it'll take several conversations Before they approach you in another conversation and they go, I think this person really gets me now. I wonder what they're all about. But in my experience with conservatives, absolutely equal capacity to be curious, no question.
1: So this person says, I have a hard time taking in other opinions to honestly consider because they are often laden with racism or misogyny or something similar. How do you strip that away and see what's left? Yeah.
2: Well, first, I mean, I think that it's worth dwelling on. I talked about different levels of difficulty. What I mean sometimes is pain. Sometimes people's different perspectives can be very painful to hear because they, do, they, they will come with something that just feels so wrong. So wrong. So in that situation, it's, you you know, you have to sort of decide, well, maybe not today. Maybe today's not the day to push any deeper. There was social science research, uh, too, that, that really blew my mind about how when you ask each side of the political divide assumes the other side hates them Twice as much as they actually do. We exaggerate the animosity. Um, and I'll, I'll say this. Uh, as, as a journalist, I have interviewed people who have certainly expressed some pretty racist views or you know, views that are unsavory in one way or another. I, I interviewed someone on death row who murdered two cab drivers for $400 in petty cash. Um. What I, have, what I have found is that a lot of the times hate is also internally facing that, that there's people who carry a lot of wounds and that those wounds sometimes, I don't know, it makes it easier to project dehumanization onto others. Um, and we've certainly paid a lot of attention, you know, lately, as, as we should, to things like racism and misogyny and all kinds of things. I'm also paying a lot of attention to the dehumanization of the poor uh, or of folks who are rural from the cities. Um, if you talk to folks on the right, they're very concerned about the dehumanization of unborn babies. So, anyway, this is a tricky one. But I do think that even it is possible, even when we hear extremely dehumanizing kinds of things, if there is a relationship there, if there is something you care about with that person, and you could not burn that bridge, then you don't know what journey that person's going to be on. And you don't know whether someday they might kind of go, Maybe I'm wrong about this group of people. Maybe I don't see things the right way. Now I'm curious about my own views. And you know what? You know, this friend, this person in my life has been hearing me on some things and maybe I want to go talk to them. Maybe that's something I'm ready to do. So that's that's why it takes, you know, it can take a lot of courage, but but burning the bridges, you know, when people don't have connections to folks who can help them see things differently that, that's in some ways when, when, when we're beyond hope
1: how can we report uh, ooh, sorry <laughs> so this person asking how can we reward public officials for being curious with each other our separate camps mm-hmm. seem to reward politicians for taking hard lines or at least that's what it seems politicians think we want
2: mm-hmm.
1: how can we work on changing that
2: Yep. Well, I'll say this to give everyone some hope there too. Um, So at Braver Angels, we're working on an initiative called Braver Politics. It's so exciting because basically all the workshops and the grassroots things that we've been doing that have worked, like Brown University recently did a study, it works. Um, We're taking them into the halls of power. So there's members of Congress doing our workshops. There's staffs on the Hill. Um, are, are learning how they can listen to constituents' concerns when they're being yelled at them, you know, and, and listen beneath the anger and, and figure out what we can pick apart. Um, so that's really exciting. And, and the other thing is, I mean, I'll say this. Just like media, politics as an institution reflects us. It does. The incentives are not great, and they're going to be really hard to dismantle in that system, but it does reflect us, and we do reward our politicians by subscribing to the outrage and following that. It's, it's. I call it um, quoting John Medina, who's a neuroscientist from from the area. Our dopamine lollipops online, right? When someone, you know, when someone just like scores a victory for our side, we're like, yeah, and we we love, you know, when that politician we hate does that thing we, that we hate that they do, and, then, and we spread it, and you know, is not this terrible? And of course. You know, journalists aren't always that helpful either. I mean, the gamesmanship of all of it, it's all inextricably tied together. Um, And so it's difficult to say, okay, who's going to start to untie this knot? And it's going to have to be all of us, but I really do believe that it begins at the grassroots level when those of us who have really gotten to the point of enough just decide, maybe I'm not just going to talk about people. I'm going to talk with them. I'm going to talk with people who are different. I'm going to get offline. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to do it online, but I'm going to do it curiously and spend maybe less time consumed.
1: So um, here's another question. How do we navigate the tension between being curious and open to differing viewpoints with the danger of falling into the quagmire of moral relativism and Mm -hmm. both-sideism? Yeah. Both sides is amazing. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. the, the both I, I think
1: a lot of people probably feel that it's like, yeah, I want to do this, but I don't want to just gloss over things that right. I think are wrong.
2: Right. Exactly. And that's that goes back to what I was saying about trust building and truth seeking are two separate. They're related, but they're two separate processes. So the trust building, we conflate it with truth seeking. Right. If I if I get curious about what's behind false conclusions, I am endorsing those false conclusions? No, you're not. You're not. So listening to someone else's story is not in and of itself tainting you necessarily. It's not something that's going to infect you. So so that's the thing, I think, with, with both sides, is the charge of that. Now, the the other thing that I know people are afraid of is this idea that, well, if we do this, we're somehow admitting that there is... You know, 50% of the truth on all things is on the left and 50% of the truth on all things is on the right. That's not true. We know that's not true. Here's the problem. None of us knows how much is on either side. None of us does. And none of us is in the position to objectively be able to predict that because we're living in such a polarized world. So I think it begins with the thing we ultimately need to distrust is our view of the other side. We're not seeing it clearly. Um, we we've got so much evidence that it's just not adding up and it's making us more afraid than we need to be and something's up. So we we need to do more discovery on the one-to-one level. So, so again, it's like, I don't buy the idea that by listening to ideas, we're endorsing them or attaching ourselves to them. No. And in fact, I think the issue there is we keep staying at the level of ideas, but this book is about the level of people. We're going to people. People are not their ideas. People are the deepest, richest mystery on earth. And we cannot solve that mystery from a distance. We can't do it. Um, We're only going to get ourselves to a worse and worse place.
1: That, That reminds me of one of my favorite lines from your book that you go into a discussion about, which is, people are not puzzles they are mysteries. Right. Yeah, right. that all of us are we're not a bunch of pieces that can, can somehow be put together and then under, totally understood. Yeah. We're all wacky and yeah. goofy and And that's have a very that's
2: a very irritating reality because yeah. you know right now we're in we're in the kind of information ecosystem where every every question should be answered by looking it up on Google. Everything should just be there for me, <laughs> you know. Nothing should be all that surprising, but but that ethic is Putting us in a place where we're losing our patience with with each other and the complexity of each other, um, we can barely understand ourselves sometimes. You know, <laughs> so understanding other people is not something you can do overnight or with a meme drop on on Facebook or Instagram. You know, it's just going to take time.
1: Well, there's another question here that I s- suspect you will <laughs> uh, have uh, some resonance with, because um, it, it's sort of about our favorite thing to do is Seattle liberals when we all get together and that is, what are some effective ways to respond or be curious when like-minded liberals are quick to bash conservatives Mm. and their values? Mm. Because that's so much fun. (laughs) Um. (laughs) And I'm sure on, I know for sure, folks on the right love to get together and own the libs. So, you know, when when you're with a group of your friends who You know where have are like minded agree on everything and just engage in that uh, do now feel compelled to say, "Well, wait a minute
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely, I do feel compelled to and say do, that. are
1: you thrown out of the party at that point
2: not so far <laughs> okay. so far i'm still there uh but we'll see um but but there's there's also been some really fascinating research about how people understand each other's moral positions um much, quick, much more quickly when, um, when they hear stories, when they hear stories about real people and their experiences. So, you know, in the situations I've been in, where I go, I have my parents are Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump, they're not there in the room, but I am kind of representing them, and I can humanize who's been dehumanized. So that is one of the most powerful things to say, because you're not judging the judgment, you're bringing in new information you know and you can do it gently and tactfully because again what's happening is we all like to bond right like everyone does this in one way or another we all like, like to bond by talking smack about who is not like us you know whether we do it for sports or whatever it just makes us feel good so yeah sometimes it's a little tough to kind of spoil that party but you can do it by by bringing your experience so again this is this is a, a this is a power we have that goes away the more bridges we burn and the less that we you know the more that we are like ashamed and never talk about those people who feel differently that we happen to know
1: well you're, you're uh, all of this and reading your book and having talks with you reminds me of something i learned that stuck with me for decades i i i in the 80s, I got a master's degree in international relations at the University of Kent in Canterbury, England, and um, I had a great lecturer there, a guy named Keith Webb, and he, he said there was this simple rule that as as academics that you need to follow, and I think this gets to the heart of what your your book is about. Um, he said there are two rules. And this is true for journalists and for all of us. Something is not true just because some expert or authority or important person says it's true. Um, and that's not that hard. For many people, that's not the hardest thing to do. It's, it's easy to be skeptic of, maybe too much of a skeptic of experts. But the second rule is something isn't true just because you agree with it. Yeah. And... Um, It seems to me that's what you're asking all of us to do, even though we may have our strong beliefs and strong concerns and certainties, but just to step back and say, do I really Mm -hmm. know it all? (laughs) And can I learn something from this other person?
2: Yeah. And and I like thinking about all of us are wrong about something all the time. We just don't know what it is. (laughs) We don't know what it is. What is it? You know, no one's going to come down and tell us you're wrong about these things. Um, But we know, um, and this I think is important to understand, too, and this comes from David Smith, who's a wonderful philosopher um, and teacher in Washington State. Um, We don't choose our opinions. And when I heard him say that, it blew my mind. We don't choose our opinions. We arrive at our opinions through our experiences and our values and the natural course of our lives. And I talk about my husband, who loves uh, Star Wars, You know, his parents took him to see Star Wars, like the prequels a bajillion times in the movie theater and all this stuff. He's got a life-size Yoda that his grandmother gifted him that scares small children in her (laughs) rec room. I could try to talk him into loving Star Trek more for the rest of my days. It's not going to happen. I can't persuade him. He's got a lifetime of meaning built up in Yoda and Luke Skywalker. One conversation, one little thing is not going to change his mind. So, so that's, yeah, and, and that's, it goes for us, it goes for everybody else, you know. Um, we arrive at our opinions through the natural course of our lives. Sometimes people, you know, David Smith, the, the man I just mentioned, he, he gave up tenure. Uh, he, had to, he had to give up tenure and refuse tenure at his school that he had been studying with because he realized after 15 years that something in his faith had fundamentally changed. He lost all his friends, he lost his community. Sometimes we we are reluctant to change our opinions because it's almost like a small death. Who we are just ended. Oh no. And then we have to figure out what to do about it. So, yeah, this is not it's not easy to question our opinions. It's much easier to take the bundle package of our side and go with it and, you know, echo the talking points and have fun with the dopamine lollipops, but that's not us learning. That's that's not us being a healthy society.
1: So when we finally get to a point where we're not dealing with stereotypes and sort of uh, making fun of each other and, and pointing out each other's flaws, will there be room for political cartoons? <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to yes, do? Yes,
2: definitely. <laughs> definitely. No, because, yes... There is so much absurdity in our society, and, and it's one of the ways we learn is to laugh, you know, and you're really good at that, and lots of folks are really good at that. Um, so I hope we never stop doing that. In fact, one of the things that I think is, is most unfortunate about the last couple of years is we've lost the ability to find some humor in all this, because when, when we're not able to laugh, we're not seeing the absurdity of what we're doing to each other. This is ridiculous. This makes no sense. It doesn't square with what we know about being human. Why are we doing it? It's just dumb. You know. So like, if you can just kind of say it's dumb and look at it and poke fun at it, and yeah, poke fun at the politicians that are encouraging it, right? And the journalists who are just exaggerating. Please poke more fun at all of this. Yeah, I think we need more. Can you like okay. do twice Good. as many cartoons as you've been doing? No. No. <laughs> That great.
1: well, I've been tasked with keeping this to approximately an hour, mm-hmm. and the, uh, there's still a few questions, but I think <laughs> you kind of hit on all the topics um, so before I cut it off, do you have any final thoughts you 've shared a lot, but yeah. Uh, yeah
2: yeah, no, I mean, just i I take a lot. Um, I do have a lot of hope, um, and I and I get people asking me that, like, how could you, you know? And maybe I, there's could be lots of reasons, but I am spending a lot of my time in conversation, and it changes things. It really does make the world look different, and 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 it's it's awesome, and it's clearer, and I see the I see the potential in each of us to be creative, and to get through the stuff, and I see how much everybody wants a better way. And so when I see that, I'm like, well, great. All we got to do is notice that we all want it, and then go get it. Done.
1: All right. Well, thank you for a rare, optimistic message. (laughs) And thank you all for coming tonight.
2: (laughs) Thanks, everybody. All right.
0: Town Hall Seattle, the Henry M. Jackson Foundation and the Western Washington Braver Angels Alliance presented this conversation with Monica Guzman on March 22nd. To find the full event and other great Seattle-area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.